with our study in the Sermon on the Mount. And tonight we are in uh, verses 33 through 37 here in chapter 5. You got any questions about anything up to this point? Hey, Don, why don't you prop that door open so it doesn't get too hot and stuffy in here? Can you do that? Yes, sir. Uh, check over there on that table in the basket. If you can't find one, ask Don. This is his room. Pen. Something to write with. He's got one. So any questions about anything up to this point? You've got it mastered. I love it. Well, tonight we're talking about uh, truth. Truth. Truth or the lack of truth. Uh, I believe, I think you can make the case, makes the very uh, heart of any society. Now, why would I make a statement like that? Why is truth important? that important to society? Yeah, to a, to a society, a community, a culture, a state, a nation, the world. You realize how important it is when you see so little of it. Truth. Yeah, sir. You can build off of it, knowing that everything's truthful and trust. Yeah, and the antithesis of that is. You can't build on anything where there's where it's false, right? Where there where there's untruth, um, lies, and uh, that destroys the very fabric of our culture, which infiltrates everything, doesn't it? I mean, take for instance in our culture, if if there's no truth in the judicial process, if it lacks truth, where are you as a society? I mean, we know, right? We, we come in, we, we know the drill. I don't know how many of you have ever, anybody ever testified in court? I knew Dave, I knew you had. You have. Do, do they still have you swear on the Bible? Do you put your hand on the Bible and swear? I guess it depends on where you are, right? Uh, but what do you, what do you, what, what's, the, what's the vow you take when you're, when you're doing that? They still let you say, so help me God? What's that? I said that was in times past. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But if you can't, I mean, we know we have severe penalties in a court of law for those that don't tell the truth, right? Somebody commits perjury for this very reason that if you can't if you can't get the truth out, then you have no basis for for de- determining anything really of value, right? You I mean you're just completely lost. What about uh, our relationships? For instance, marriage. Yep. Truth important there? Yeah. I was thinking when you said truth of, you know, basically the relationship is, is trust and unity. That comes from truth. We know. 
we know that with any relationship, trust, trust is critical, right? Your relationship is only as good as the trust that binds you together. And so anytime untruth factors into this, it's going to deteriorate, it's going to erode the relationship, isn't it? A lot of marriages have failed simply because truth began to uh, crumble because someone broke truth. And it only takes one time, right? only takes once uh, for that to happen. It takes a long time of good, truthful interaction to build a relationship. It only takes one lie to destroy it, doesn't it? What about the marketplace? Business. Businessman. You expect to get lied to in your business relationships? Does it happen? All the time. <laughs> All the time. Well, it's interesting you say that, like from a contextual standpoint. There are cultures in the world where the, the, the most unique thing you can do from a business perspective is get somebody to buy something off of faucets. But the yeah. worst thing that can happen in a prospect is to get caught. Yeah. And these are cultures that tend to have a little bit more chaos than us. And so it's, it's reinforcing the fact that a lack of truth means ultimately nobody's coming out ahead. Yeah. Might, in a transaction, you might win, but long term, everybody's going to win. One of my favorite Andy Griffith episodes is The Horse Trader. Anybody, anybody seen it? You know, where the town, the town has the old broken down cannon that they decide they want to sell because it's an eyesore. And they encounter this guy that's an antique uh, junk collector that comes through town. They get, him, they get him interested in it. And Andy is just laying it on real thick, you know. It's got TR scratched on the side. And he said, this cannon belonged to Teddy Roosevelt. He pulled it up San Juan Hill. And, and this guy's lapping it up. And Barney is just rolling his eyes, and he can't believe. He says, you know that T Teddy Rupert scratched those initials in, in the side of that cannon, and it's not good for anything. Teddy Roosevelt didn't own it. And, and the point is, he ended up getting a lot of money for the cannon, but because his friends chastised him over it, he started feeling bad, and he ended up giving away what the guy had promised to give him. You know, and, and letting it go for a lot less. He, he talked himself way back down to a very modest sum. Truth is important as a foundational element to our society. You know, his friends were looking at him because uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't trust him if this is what he was going to do. His own son watched the behavior in this episode and started mimicking it with his friends. You know, he convinced one of his friends that, a, that an oddball cufflink that his dad had given to him actually had belonged to George Washington, you know. Yeah, yeah. He said, did you tell him that? And he said, well, that's kind of the idea he got. You know, so truth and half-truth, all these things, it's a part of society. It goes on. We know we have con artists, sham artists, you may get phone calls, you may get emails, things of that nature that are uh, promising you the world. We've been around long enough that we kind of expect those things to be false, not true. But if there's not some semblance of truth, then we don't have much to work with, do we? A few years ago, a lot of years ago, 
when I was just out of college, I'm going to tell this on myself, and it's, it's, uh, I'm ashamed to tell it, but it makes my point. I was a, a young businessman, and uh, I had a customer. And, um, you know, we had the business I worked for was very integrity-oriented. And uh, we believed in being the best at what we did, and so I called, I called our company kind of the Cadillac of the industry. We sold a great product. We didn't pretend to be the cheapest product, but we were fair and, and honest about it. And, uh, and I was just learning some of these things. It's kind of a strange thing, you know, for me to say, but, uh, but I had quoted. This guy had asked me for a quote on product, and I'd given it to him. And when we produced it, it came in really really about half of what I had projected it to be. I don't know if I made a mistake on the estimating or we just did a great job on the production, but it came in. And I charged him what I quoted him, okay? Because, um, you know, I've been around business. I've learned a few things that sometimes you lose and sometimes you win. And when you win, you can take some of what you won there and help cover up some of the things that you lost. Does that make sense? And my boss had taught me that, that sometimes your customer's going to beat you out of some things. So when you can make it over here, it's okay to, you know, kind of get some of that back and, and take care of it, balance the books out a little bit. But I didn't really understand what he was saying. So I, I billed it at, uh, at what it came in at, or what I had projected it at. I did that about twice with him. And then he calls me one day and he says, you know, your competitor's been in here, and you are gouging me on this product. Well, I was caught, right? I mean, I knew it. It had been different if I hadn't caught it and hadn't known it, but I knew it. And I started trying to defend it. And he got really angry, and he asked to talk to my boss. And I didn't want to do that, you know, so I'm trying to talk him out of it. Well, I just made it worse and worse and worse. Long, long story short, you know, I lost his business. And, and I lost a lot in my boss's eyes, and it took me a long time to get it back. He understood I was young and green and, and stupid and, you know, didn't give they're up on me. Huh? <laughs> they don't call them green anymore? What do they call them? I said, no, you're not young and green. No, I'm not young and green anymore, but I was then. And, and you know, I've never been so embarrassed over something, I think, in my life when I had to have that conversation with my boss. I knew I was in the wrong. I knew I had done wrong. Um... And, but that customer basically told me the last time I talked to him, I can't trust you, you know, because I, I said, give me another shot. I messed up. He said, no, I can't trust you. And you've lost your trust. You've lost everything. You don't have any basis for a relationship, for business, for marriage, for, for law. You have to be able to trust those things. Jesus is dealing with this here in the Sermon on the Mount. This concept of truth in our society has been dying a slow death for a long time. And, and some of you have referenced that or alluded to it in, in some of your comments. In the early 2000s, comedian Stephen Colbert picked up on this cultural phenomenon by coining the term truthiness, which went on to become Merriam-Webster's Merriam Word of the Year in 2006. Similarly, in 2016, in the wake of our presidential election, Brexit uh, accusations across the political spectrum about fake news, right? That's, is that still a thing? Yeah. Is that still a thing, Johnny? Fake news? I don't pay attention to the news, so I don't know. So Oxford Dictionaries named Post-Truth its word of the year. Shortly thereafter, commenting on the presidential inauguration, Kellyanne Conway, 
Conway famously spoke of alternative facts. What does that mean? What are alternative facts? It's lies, isn't it? Is there such a thing as alternative facts? Can you have alternative facts? I don't know. 2018, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani claimed truth isn't truth during an interview with Chuck Todd on NBC. And, of course, let's not forget Bill Clinton splitting hairs over the definition of sexual relations and existentially pondering what an attorney's definition of is is back in 1998. Truthiness has cut both ways across the political aisle in our post-truth age, and it continues to do so. And here's, here's the real indicator, I think, for us, is that we laugh about it because it's a joke, right? Everywhere we turn, it's a joke. But what it's indicative of is an eroding culture. And it's really problematic because without truth, we don't really have much of a culture, do we? We've been trying, the experts have been trying, the philosophers have been trying for years to tell us the truth is relative. Relativism is a thing. Whatever's truth to you, is your truth, but don't try to press your truth on me, right? Mm -hmm. So what's that got to do with what Jesus is talking about? Well, he, um, he's got these guys, these, uh, these religious leaders that at the time were, were doing similar things to what we see in our culture. This is not new, by the way. We, we think about it in our context as being something new, but it's really not been going on since the beginning of time, is it not? Isn't this exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden? Yep. And what, what was Satan's tactics with Adam and Eve? Did God say this? I mean, he didn't outright lie, but what he did was cast a shadow of doubt on truth. He called into question God's word. Can you really believe God? Did he really say this? And they bought it. Sin came into the world. It's gone on uh, since then. It's been going on since that Garden of Eden. The half-truths. Rebecca and Jacob lied to Isaac in order to steal the family birthright and the blessing. Didn't they? I mean, it went to great lengths. Taking goat's hair and putting it on his arm. Trying to make himself smell like Esau. Trying to talk like Esau in order to get the family birthright. Laban lied to Jacob and his promise to give Rachel as a wife after he worked for him for seven years. Can you imagine? Seven years he worked because he loved this woman, wanted her to be his wife, and when they had the marriage ceremony, he finds out after this is over with, he's actually given him another one, another one of the girls. And, and when, you, when you look closely at the language that's used to describe Leah, where Rachel was beautiful, Rachel, Leah was not. It says that she was weak in the eye. Actually, there's Bible scholars believe that she may have had some sort of deformity or something uh, there, that she was less than plain. She was maybe ugly. Seven years he worked. It's not like he wrote a check you know, for $50 and, and bought a wife, he labored for seven years and for his wife, and he was lied to. 
Jacob's sons lied to him about Joseph being killed by an animal. Jacob's sons lied to Shechem about giving him, uh, giving him their sister after he'd violated her. Jacob confronted him. It's really, it's really interesting to see how this comes. It always comes home, doesn't it? Jacob finds out what his sons have done and brought reproach on himself. And he says to them in Genesis 34, 30, when he's confronting them about lying to Shechem, and he says, do you not know that you've made me stink in the, in the eyes and in, in the senses of, of the people here in this area because of what you've done? Because you lied. You've deceived when God gave the Ten Commandments, He had to put it in there, didn't He? Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. Don't lie. So credibility and truth have been issues with humanity forever. And it was a big problem here in Jesus' day. He's addressing it in the Sermon on the Mount. The Jews in Jesus' day revered the idea of truth and principle, but they didn't practice it. As, that's no surprise, is it? Uh, in practice, it was buried deep under their system of tradition. He says, again, you have heard that it was said. Now, this is the fourth of six of these statements that Jesus uses. You've heard it said. In other words, this is what they say. This is what they say. This is how they practice the law. This is how they observe the law. But I say to you, so he's contrasting what they've been accustomed to hearing from the Jewish leadership with what his take is on things. He says, um, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the, uh, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So what they had done was pared down all of these uh, traditions into something that actually fit their cause, what their agendas were. They made it work for them so they could prosper, so they could benefit. Okay? And they're, they're using oaths and vows, promises, like they're going out of style. Okay, so if you've got something that is um, very minimal, I can't think of a good example right off the top of my head. Uh, if I'm going to sell Johnny something, you know, I'm going to sell Johnny this marker, and I'm making it out to be the product that he wants it to be, but it's really not. And I may say, Johnny, I promise you, on my mother's grave, this, this is the best pen you'll ever, it's the last pen you'll ever buy. So you heard what I just did. I gave him an oath. I gave him a promise that was clearly, you know, it's hyperbole. It's, it's way over the top. There's no way. It's a bad vow. Oh, my mother's grave. What does that even mean? <laughs> you know, that, uh, she's already dead, right? I mean, I don't understand what that means. But this is the kind of thing they were doing. They were making outrageous oaths and, and vows to make things seem more important than they really were or to make things seem more credible than they really were. And this was going on everywhere. And they were, they were basing these oaths on everything. 
They were swearing by not, you know, we swear, we put a hand on the Bible. We swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help us God. That's as high as you can go, right? In fact, Hebrews tells us that God even takes an oath on himself since there's no one higher than, than him, right? You use these things, what Jesus is saying, these things are used when they're absolutely necessary and when there's something really at stake, okay? And then you treat them that way. You treat them with that kind of seriousness, that kind of sobriety. But what was going on in the culture was not. They were just trivializing it. They were battering these things around and not, not really taking them seriously. And they were swearing on anything and everything. I swear by the temple. I swear by the hairs on your head. I swear by this. I swear by that. And Jesus is saying, this is really out of control. And there's no foundation for truth in their society. No reason to believe anything anybody says. Because they're so over the top with it. So, let's think about the principle that was inherent in the Mosaic Law. When we think about truth, we think about vows, we think about oaths, because that's what he's talking about here. The traditional teaching Jesus quotes here is a composite of ideas based on Leviticus 19, 12, Numbers 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 23, 21. Uh, Sam, can you look up one of those? Look up Leviticus 19, 12 for me. Okay. Bill, if you'll look up uh, Numbers 30 and verse 2. Brian, if you'll do Deuteronomy 23:21. Jesus uses two different terms here for, uh, for the vow that he's talking about. One of them means uh, to, to swear falsely, I mean to out and out tell a lie. The other means to enclose. You know, when you make a vow or an oath, you're essentially pinning something in. You, you are putting a fence around it. And saying this, this is it. Okay, so he makes very clear that he's talking about uh, the things that they're doing, why they're doing it, and that they're doing it uh, in a way that's uh, that's false, that's self-serving. Uh, Sam, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Bill, Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, "This is what the Lord commands." When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but do everything he says. And Brian? Um, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So what the Old Testament is teaching is that when these things were done, they're done to increase credibility. They're done to get someone's attention and say, I'm being, very, I'm being very honest and trustworthy here. And what's happening in the New Testament in Jesus' culture is he's saying, these guys are destroying that whole system. They're making it trivial. They're watering it down. They're eroding it. So truth is not believable anymore. There isn't any truth. Same problem we have in our culture today. Any oath calling on God invites him to witness the truthfulness of what is said and avenge it if it's untruth. You can imagine that. When you go to a court of law and you take this oath, 
right there in front of the jury, the judge, and everyone, and say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. What you're saying is, if I don't tell the truth, may God strike me dead. May God deal with me. May God avenge this lie on me. So not only do you run risk perjury by our court system, by the judicial system, and the fines and consequences that entails, but also you uh, are opening yourself up to the judgment of God. That's how serious it's taken. And that's what Jesus is saying. When you make an oath, when you make a vow, you should take it serious. Your word's at stake. Your reputation's at stake. The credibility, the trust that you're building with people, or the business you're doing with them, whatever's going on, you should take it that serious. But there's grave consequences for those who don't take it serious. There are numerous occasions in the Old Testament where God provided for making oaths by his name. When Abraham made an oath to the king of Sodom, he did it by, by the name of God. Uh, he did the same thing with Abimelech. You remember Abimelech's the one that he deceived about Sarah? That he was Sarah was his sister. He, you know, and that was a, that wasn't it wasn't a blatant lie. Sarah was his half sister, but she was his wife. So he let Abimelech think that he, she was his sister only in order to protect his own skin. So he, he navigated the edge just like Satan, a half truth, in order to try to protect himself. Uh, Abraham made Eliezer swear to, to God before searching out a wife for Isaac. Remember, he made him put his hand under his thigh and, and state this vow. I mean, it was serious. He said, you're going to get a wife for my son. You promise me that you're going to my people, back to my hometown, and find those people because this is important to God. It's important to me. This is the way it's got to be done. So he made him take that vow. Jacob and Laban called on God as their witness when they made a vow and a covenant at Mizpah in Genesis 31. David and Jonathan did the same thing over their friendship. They took a vow. And David made a vow to the Lord in Psalm 132 too. And God made oaths as well. An oath is only as reliable as the one making it. No matter how strong the words may be, it's only as good as the one making it. Right? There's no character associated with the one who's making it. If there's no honesty within the person who's making it, then the vow doesn't have any credibility anyway. Doesn't matter all these other things that you're adding on top of it, right? All the adjectives that you're throwing around there with it to try to make it sound more impressive. You know, you're just following the course of the those little lizards, right, that blow themselves up and try to make themselves look bigger, more impressive. So you'll be intimidated, you know. But if you know that's what you're doing, they're doing, you don't have to listen. And society had lost lost the ability to take those things seriously because there were so many running around blowing themselves up, making it sound like they weren't. When Peter denied the, knowing the Lord in the uh, courtyard the night of Jesus' arrest, you remember the encounter with the little girl that said, hey, you're one of those. And it says, Peter said, I am not. I don't know who this man is. Three times he was encountered. And you remember the third time says that he made an oath. He made an oath. He swore. We think that he swore. That's what people say. They mean he did profanity. But that's not what it means. What it means is that he took an oath. I swear to God, I don't know who this man is. Is basically what he was doing. 
He was trying his hardest to convince them that I don't know who he is because you might arrest me and kill me too. Now the perversion of this rabbinic tradition that's going on that Jesus is addressing, what he mentions in verse 33 sounds like it could be biblical. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. That sounds like good medicine, right? That sounds like good advice. But he's taking it a step further and going beyond that and saying, just let your yes be yes and your no, no. There's no need for you to go through all these, all these jumping through these hoops trying to impress people. Just say it. Just say what you mean and mean what you say. That's the way you should conduct yourselves. That's the way it's always been. He said there's a special time and place for taking an oath. And it shouldn't be watered down. It shouldn't be minimized and trivialized the way that these people were. It loses all of its significance when you do that. It had a missing ingredient. What was missing was a proper purpose circumstance for making a vow. It needed or required a serious occasion calling for an oath or vow. Because the serious reasons for making an oath were non-existent, making oaths became frivolous. Okay? In other words, you go to court of law... A man's life is in jeopardy because he's been accused of a serious crime, maybe capital murder, and and he may stand to lose his life. That's a pretty serious matter. You take an oath to tell the truth. What I'm about to tell you is the honest truth. That's serious, you know. But if we're in here and you're playing a practical joke on Sam, you take his pen and he says, okay, who took my pen? I didn't take it. I didn't take it. No point in going to all those measures to take an oath, right? I swear I didn't take your pen. But it happens all the time, doesn't it? We get our priorities mixed up and confused. I think Jesus is dealing with some of that as well. Also, they had a misplaced emphasis. A misplaced emphasis contributed to this same erosion and seriousness, encouraged common practices. The vows and oaths should be considered as unto the Lord, thus keeping them as uh, was mandatory. This resulted in people swearing to all sorts of things upon all sorts of things, jumping through histrionics and drama to validate what was really untrue to start with. The rabbinic tradition reduced God's standard of absolute truthfulness, and this reduction actually accommodated selfish, sinful capacities and purposes of the people. A recent cover story for The Economist An international magazine was titled, and here's the title, Yes, I'd Lie to You, The Post-Truth World. The article analyzed the dishonesty that's wreaking havoc in politics, journalism, social media, and other areas of our common life. One expert quoted in the article said, Right now it pays to be outrageous, but not to be truthful. The article also highlighted one of the most effective ways to tell lies by hiding the truth in a glut of information. Information glut is the uh, new censorship. Adding uh, uh, some governments, other governments are now employing similar tactics. China's authorities, for instance, do not try to censor anything or everything they do not like on social media, but often flood the networks with distracting information. In a similar fashion, in post-coup Turkey, the number of dubious posts and tweets has increased sharply. Even I can go uh, no longer really tell what is happening in parts of Turkey, uh, says Miss uh, Tuvecki, who was born in the country. 
and is a, a professor at the University of North Carolina. So there's a rhyme and a reason behind what we see going on in our culture today. There's an erosion of truth. It's by design. God majors on truth, focuses on truth. Truth affects everything, including the gospel. You know, if you don't believe, if you come to the place that you believe truth is non-existent, if you come to the place to believe that everyone's got their own set of truth, that it's relative for everyone, then why should you believe that a man was crucified for the sin of the world and resurrected from the dead? Well, that's what you believe. That's fine for you, but I don't believe that. You see, all of a sudden, we, we have no claims, no call for absolute truth anymore. It's just what we want it to be to serve our own purposes. It was going on in Jesus' day. It's going on in our day. The perspective of divine truth currently. Jesus reasserts the Old Testament standard that had been abused and misconstrued by tradition. It's best to make no oath at all, he says. Just let your word be your word. Your yes, yes, your no, no. These things are to be used only on important occasions. William Hendrickson said this about Matthew 5, 33-37. He says, what we have here in these verses is the condemnation of the flippant, profane, uncalled for, and often hypocritical oath used in order to make an impression or to spice daily conversation. Over against that evil, Jesus commends simple truthfulness in thought, word, and deed. Some oaths were used to undermine uh, the very thing that they suppose, uh, supposedly supported. <laughs> That's, you know, shooting, sh shooting yourself in your own foot, right? God is creator of everything. To carelessly use any part of his creation as a witness to a false oath was dishonorable to God. Life and all creation is not compartmentalized, but God is involved in everything. Truth's not about degrees, it's about the whole. It's about the whole. You can't take parts and say, I don't believe it. Expect it to stand. Part untruth is a whole lie. See Satan in the Garden of Eden, right? If it's 1% lie, then the whole thing's a lie, isn't it? You take white paint and you put one drop of black paint in it to mix it, it's no longer purely white, is it? Put it another way. If I had a nice bottle of Dasani Aquafina water here, all right? Nice cold water, and I just broke the seal on it and put one teensy little bit of strychnine in it, how many of you would want to take a drink? How many would want the first drink? Just one little little bit. But that's all it takes, isn't it? It's deadly. And so it is with untruth and with lies. And Jesus, I think, is making this case. We've said all the way through the Sermon on the Mount that he is teaching, he's teaching people what kingdom people look like. Kingdom people they're not out there making these careless oaths and vows and, and misconstruing truth and eroding truth, but they understand the importance of truth and they're, they're treating it that way. They're treating it with respect. They're acting that way as purveyors of truth.
because they know that it serves the gospel well to do that. The scripture tells us that among the things that God especially hates, one of them is what? A lying tongue. Pride's at the top of the list, but lying lips are right there close. Proverbs tells us lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. And just as God hates lying, so do those who are faithful to Him. Psalm 119, 163 says. So, let your statements be plain and truthful. Let your yes be yes, and your no, no. James 5, 12. Question? Didn't believe there was such a thing. He's talking about Pilate. And Jesus was before Pilate. Oh, right. Okay. Pilate said, What is truth? Jesus said, I am truth, didn't he? I'm the way, I'm the truth. Comments? Rebuttals? Rude remarks? Not easy. It's not easy. No, it's not. The temptation is there. And I'll go back to the story I shared with you out of my own background and history. That, that set me straight. You know, the embarrassment, the shame that I experienced or brought on myself. I said, I'm never going down that path again. It was a valuable lesson for this little greenhorn. Okay? That... No matter what, how painful the truth may be, it's nothing compared to how painful, you know, being caught in a lie or an untruth is. Um, there, you know, I was raised in an era, in a time, around people that believed that, you know, your word was who you were. You know, that your word is who you are. And that if you don't have that, you don't have much of anything. But as long as you have that, you have a lot. And... Um, uh, and so that was very, uh, that was painful. Uh, but it changed, it changed my whole thinking process. I, I think no longer was the supreme thing getting the deal, making the deal, making the money, but it was how you got there. And that's what my boss wanted me to understand because he knew that's who I was, how, how I'd been trained anyway. It was kind of like, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. You know, I'm trying to be successful. Yeah, I want you to know I'm successful. I want you to know you can count on me to bring it in. He said, look. And he pulled out. The, the company had this list of, uh, you know, it's kind of their covenant. This is what we do. And, and a couple of things were on there. We do things with integrity. We do things with honesty because it's the right thing to do. And we do things to have a satisfying work experience, not to make bukus of money. And that goes for the customer as well as for the one who serves them. So it was, it was a strong teachable moment for me, and, and it had impact to me even in ministry. Um, you know, it was a great, great part of my preparation to go into ministry. So, How do you think this in the context of silence in the face of non-truth? Silence? Isn't that condoning it? I mean, if you know, if you know that someone's being untruthful and you don't speak to that, you know the truth, you know the difference, and you don't speak up, aren't you complicit? 
in deceiving someone? I mean, I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can wiggle around that. I mean, I know we do, you know, because our ethics are um, negotiable most of the time. Or we say, it's not really any of my business. It wasn't my place to do it. Really? Does truth have a place? You know, in those moments, I think we have to look at it and say, I am the representative for truth here. I've got eyes on this situation. And if I am who I claim to be in Christ, my responsibility is be willing to be the truth sayer, speaker, to bring it to light. Don't you think truth? Uh, well, it's true, but don't we? But don't we do just the opposite and we say, "Look, David, I would have told you this, but I just didn't want to hurt you." Yeah, I mean, you know, if if I hurt you, who really gets hurt? I do, because you you're going to be mad at me, and I don't want to be the ones responsible for that. Um, truth may be painful, but it never ultimately hurts us, right? Not as much as untruth will. Untruth corrupts us. Truth may be painful, but it doesn't corrupt us. It sets us free. Um, truth, you know, truth spoken in, in, uh, in love with, with the Spirit of God is what we're after. We're not talking about truth, but you can break one of these other commandments, but now you're truthful. You know, so you're still, it's, they all go together. Right. You know? I can tell you as a parent that the times that my, my, my three daughters growing up, the times that their lives were most in jeopardy was when they lied to me. Right? I knew, uh, you know, you're not perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to do stupid things. You're going to disappoint. You're going to make bad decisions. That's part of growing up and learning for those things. But when you defy and intentionally lie... You know, that's just, that's just being ornery, isn't it? That's, that's intentionally <clears throat> trying to accomplish something, achieve something that's not, that we shouldn't condone, we can't condone. And those things, those times always made me the angriest with my children. And I imagine the same thing happens with us and God. We make mistakes, we stumble, we fall, we mess up, and God is faithful for to give, he says, if we confess our sin. But when we try to defend it and we try to explain it and make sense of it and you know, justify it, then I think that's when we see God lose patience with us. Yes, sir. There's an article from the Gospel Coalition about kids 